Isaiah 56, verse 9. Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour, all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow will be like today, or even far better. The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. But you, come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes, who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all this, should I relent? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts, you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed. You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked with lust on their naked bodies. You went to Molech with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the very realm of the dead. You worried yourself by such going about, but you would not say... It is hopeless. You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. Thanks, uh, Val, for reading. Well, great to see you all this morning. Um, we're coming to the second um, part in the 10-week series looking at the book of Isaiah. If you've been away on holiday 
or you've come back, um, that's where we are. We're in the second part, and we're really looking at the back end of Isaiah from chapters 56 to 66. And the context of all of the history is that God's people have been sent off into exile in punishment by an Assyrian superpower. So God is punishing them. Uh, Isaiah the prophet has spoken to them. He's long dead, but the words that he spoke continue to ring true. And it's really a series of passages that bring us hope amidst despair. So hugely relevant to each of our lives. Um, But I imagine as that was being read, um, thank you Val for reading, I imagine you perhaps were looking at that thinking, what is all of that about? Um, I was thinking that when I turned to it earlier this week, thinking, Flip, I've got to teach this and unpack it and teach it. And um, they're the two words apparently I always use, teach and unpack. I apologize. (laughs) I just busted myself. Anyway, we're going to look at this passage together, but we need God's help because it's really challenging both to understand it, but more importantly, um, to allow it to grip our hearts. So let's pray and ask for God's help now. Heavenly Father, the words in this passage are really convicting and they challenge us very much. So please, would you help us all to understand them? Please, would you help me to explain them in a way that is simple to understand? And may we leave here changed as a result of what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. Great. Well, um, last week, uh, the first in our series, I really looked at this idea of the greatness of God, how big God is. And if you remember, I sort of painted a picture, didn't I, of how great God was. And I was using some statistics from the universe, from the Milky Way, our galaxy, just to describe how awesome and big God is and how tiny we are. And I tried to help us to understand that the gospel, the Christian gospel, is all about how God in all his greatness is interested in knowing each one of us and how it's possible for him to know each one of us. And do you remember at the end of the passage last week, verse 8, there was a real verse of hope where it was a picture of God gathering to himself his people. Not just people who are descended from Abraham, traditionally his people, the Israelites, but anybody who will put their trust in God can become a part of God's family. An amazing story. And I I acted out a little prophetic drama, if you're here. I opened the double doors out here. I tried to make it clear to us that the purpose of us, a gathered people here, is not to stay in here and keep people out. The purpose of us in here is to go out there and gather people in. Help people to come and understand the gospel for themselves and have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Well, if last week was really about understanding that God is a great rescuer, this week is all about conviction that you and me need to be rescued and that's challenging that's why this passage is challenging it's difficult to understand and it's more difficult to accept the truths that were in it I just want you to think about some uh, great great leaders think about leaders in the world okay one of the realities in the world is that the heart of a leader often determines the heart of the people You'll see that all the time in the world, okay? So let's see if we can get a couple of pictures up. Winston Churchill, there we go, we're on. Winston Churchill, often quoted as one of the greatest Britons, uh, leading our people, the people of this nation, through the Second World War. Anyone know who that is? Florence Nightingale, a few of the nurses here are speaking up. The founder of modern nursing, in her own way, a real leader, uh, and has done a huge amount for our world. One of my heroes, Ernest Shackleton, a great explorer, a very brave leader who took men with him and explored parts of the world that had never been explored before. Corrie ten Boom, 
Again, a very inspirational leader, rescued many, many Jews in the Holocaust during the war. Uh, quiet, but very effective. Not so quiet, but also effective. Uh, Martin Luther King, you might know the famous speech, I have a dream, a dream that one day we will all be united. There will be no black, no white. There will be no division between the man, people that God has made. All different leaders in different ways. Princess Diana, when she was alive, at the time, the most famous woman in the world, one of the wealthiest women in the world. But you saw an amazing picture, didn't you, of her holding children who've got AIDS, holding orphans, and you sort of saw the rich and the poor come together. And in her own sort of inspirational way, led a lot of people. And Fergie, you might not like him, but he is one of the greatest footballing coaches of all time. But there's the reality that the heart of a leader often determines the heart of the people. And it's exactly true in the Bible, and that's the repeated pattern that you get all the way through Scripture. And you'll know that there have been bad leaders of God's people. There were good leaders. There were better leaders. But they were all fallen in different ways. Do you remember the picture I showed you last week? That man bowing down there is Jehu, an Israelite king, one of the kings over God's people. And he there is bowing down and paying tribute to a foreign king. And remember, this was at the time when God's people split in half, just before the exile. The heart of a leader often determines the heart of the people. Well, have a look at our passage and have a look. Chapter 56 and verse 10. Isaiah says this. Israel's watchmen are blind. And then have a look at the second part of verse 11. They are shepherds who lack understanding. Now watchmen and shepherds here are different pictures of the leaders of God's people. Think about the role of a leader. In part, the role of a leader is to watch out. What do watchmen do? They keep evil out. They guard against external danger. What do shepherds do? They care for the internal needs of the flock. And a leader has to be both, keeping out what is bad and promoting and encouraging what is good. Well, here is Israel's leaders, but they haven't done it. How are Israel's leaders described? Have a look at verse 11. You see it there. They lack understanding. They've turned to their own way. They were self-seeking. And then go on to chapter 57. What happens when the leaders of God's people turn in on themselves and take their eyes off God? Look what happens. The righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away and no one understands. Here is God's people and amongst all of the rebellion there was a remnant. There were some who were faithful to God. But God's leaders had taken their eyes off God, so they hadn't even noticed what was happening to good people, for people who were seeking to love, love, love God and, and seeking to serve him. They're just turning a blind eye to all of the destruction of their own people. It's really a picture here of failed leaders. But do you see the irony in verse 10? Go back to verse 10. How are the watchmen described? See the irony? Watchmen who are blind. How are, how are they described here? They are what kind of dogs? Mute. Dogs aren't mute. Dogs make a noise. But the point is, God's leaders had failed. They couldn't see and they couldn't speak. They were failing to exercise the love of God in the community of God's people. And so at the beginning of our chapter here, God through Isaiah gives a stinging rebuke to the leadership of his people. See, it's true, isn't it, that the heart of a leader often determines the heart of the people. Now, I want to just be really direct to anybody who's in this church who's a leader. Elders, deacons, ministry team leaders, 
all in different ways. If you have any responsibility to lead, this passage is like a mirror held up in front of all of us. And it's very challenging, isn't it? So I want to ask you this question, and I ask myself this very much. If you're a leader, are you growing to know Jesus Christ more and more every day? And is that your first priority? Far beyond you do any leading, far beyond teaching, far beyond organizing, far beyond planning, far beyond being efficient and doing a great job, all of which are important, is your number one goal to keep growing in your relationship with God? Because you see in this passage what happens when God's people take their eyes off him. And it's devastating. It's no mistake, I think, that in the Bible, often when the role of a leader is unpacked, character comes first. Far beyond ability, far beyond efficiency, far beyond anything that you can give, character comes first. Why? Because when the pressure is on, character really stands through, doesn't it? And God wants Christian leaders with true gospel character. Christian leaders who can be robust when it's challenging, who can be faithful when it's challenging, who can persevere when it's challenging. And God wants us as leaders to have our relationship with God as the single most important thing in our walk with him. So there's a challenge to you as leaders, and I very much make that challenge to myself. If you're not a leader, here's a challenge to you. Do you pray for those who do lead? Because that's really important too. Leading is hard. As leaders you face criticism. As leaders you make mistakes. As leaders you're exposed in your weaknesses. And if you're not a leader, one thing you can do to be an amazing blessing to those who do lead is to pray and to encourage. God's people got themselves in a mess first because God's leaders took their eyes off him. But the amazing thing in this passage, which actually then becomes a challenge for every one of us, is that notice... What happens in chapter 57, verse 3? Even when God's leaders fail, God still holds his people to account. And that is every single one of us. Do you notice how it starts, verse 3? But you, come here. So God is summoning, he's beckoning everybody to listen to him, saying, forget what the person next to you is thinking or doing. Forget what the person next to you is thinking or doing. You listen to me. God is calling each of us to respond to him. So I want to ask you this question this morning. Are you convicted of your very great need for rescue? And I've had to ask myself that a number of times this week. So we're going to look at this passage together, particularly now chapter 57 onwards. And I just want to expose to us four realities that God exposes to us through the prophet Isaiah. Four realities that help us to see our very great need of rescue. Now this uh, is a bottle, and it's got the washing up water from some cooking I did earlier this week. Now if you were to look at this, what would you say? One word to describe this. Yuck, dirty, or disgusting, I've heard, okay? That is yuck, it is dirty, it is disgusting. That is washing up water. You wouldn't want to drink it, you wouldn't go near it. Here's the first reality. Sin is disgusting. It's yuck. It's dirty. By sin I mean an attitude deep within each of our hearts that says no to God, that seeks to live for our own gain, that is self-reliant and doesn't worship God as Lord. And each of us in different ways are guilty of this in all different areas of our life. And that attitude within our heart is like this dishwater. It's yuck. It's dirty. It's disgusting. 
And God wants to show us that. He wants to show us just how horrible it is when us as created people live as if we were the creator. Now just to jump back into our passage, have a look at these little images. That image on the left-hand side up here, this is a marble or a stone statue of a Baal. These were the Canaanite gods. And Baal is a generic word that means master. When God's people took their eyes off God, they started worshipping that. That became their master. And there were different sort of Baals. Here is another Baal called Astaroth. It was a female goddess, a belief in a female goddess. She was the fertility goddess, the goddess of sexuality, as you can probably tell from the sort of picture. God's people turned to worship that. And worse still, in this little sort of picture here, you'll see perhaps God's people gathering around and worshipping this false god called Molech. Can you see what they're doing? They're offering their own children to this false god in a belief that if they burn their children alive, God would somehow bless them. Have a look at our passage. You're probably thinking, what was all that weird stuff that Val was reading? Chapter 57, verse 5, look how God rebukes his people. You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. God's people got consumed with pagan religion and, and many of them would get caught up in these kind of acting out different sexual acts and sexual orgies under these great oak trees, believing that Astaroth, the female goddess of fertility, would seek pleasure from this and then bless them. This is God's people who are choosing to do that over worshipping him as Lord. And then you read on, second half of verse 5, you sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. And when you look at these pictures, these images, how do they make you feel? When you hear about people worshipping these things, what are you thinking? See, I hope we're thinking, are you serious? You would worship that? It's a little marble or stone image of a God that doesn't even exist. Really? I wonder if you can just join up the dots and see where I'm going. Is the penny dropping? Here's a second reality. Not only is sin disgusting, but sin is a very real problem for us. Now here's where I want you to do a little bit of work. I want you to take those images you saw on the screen, the images that you've seen in our passage of pagan idol worship that God's people got caught up in. Okay? Compare them to the words that the Apostle Paul uses at the beginning of Romans chapter 1 to expose each of our hearts. I'm just going to put them on the screen. Uh, if you're listening on the tape, it's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. But those of you who are here, I want you to read particularly verses 21 to the end and just look at those words in yellow. I'm going to give you a time, just in quietness of your own heart, to read that through. Particularly just focus on that final verse. They exchanged, that means they swapped the truth about God, all that we were thinking of last week, for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. This is where this passage stings, and it's been stinging me all week, but I want you to ask yourself the question, how is that passage revealing and true of your own heart?
Here's some questions for you to think through. What is it that motivates and drives you in life? What or who do you feel you cannot live without? What do you worry about most? What do I use to comfort myself when times are hard? What do I build my identity on? What gives me my sense of self-worth? What do I most want other people to know about me? What do I most hope for? I just want you to think, what is it in your life that's your one thing that at least at the moment is more special to you than your relationship with God? What's your one thing? Because here's the reality. I bet for many people here, your one thing is a good thing. Something you enjoy that's a gift from God. A person that you're very close to. An experience that is enjoyable and good God would want for you. But there's the reality. Often our one thing, our good thing, has become God in our life. So what's happened to God? He's become a good thing. But God's not just a good thing. He's Lord. And we've just spent most of the first half of our service singing about him being Lord. Someone has described idols as this. Anything in my life that occupies the place that God should be occupied by, should be occupied by God alone. An idol is anything that has control in my life. Whatever or whoever that moves, rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time, my energy, my money and ultimately my heart to. And I do it effortlessly. I take your one thing. Is that true of your one thing? Because I know it's so often true of my one thing. And the scary thing is I've got more than one thing, and I bet you do too. But you see, when God becomes back at the center of our life, look how this quote about idolatry changes. Look what it should be. Look how wonderful this picture is. God occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. God has control in my life. God moves, rouses, and attracts me so easily that I give my time, my energy, my money, and ultimately my heart to him And I do it effortlessly. That is a picture of true worship. What you and I were created for. The former is a picture of false worship. What we weren't created for. And yet so often it has a drag on our hearts. And it's disgusting. And you see the difficulty. Not only is sin a real problem. But it has a grip on us. Just look back at our passage. I just want to give you some examples of the grip that sin, rebelling against God, had on his people. Because it's the same for us. Have a look at chapter 56, verse 12. This is a rebuke to the leaders. Come, each one cries, let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. And tomorrow we'll be like today, or even better. You see, idols enslaved, don't they? Because we have something and it doesn't really satisfy us, so we just want more of it. A bit like an addiction to heroin, we just want more and more to get our fix. That's what idols do, they enslave us because we're never satisfied with them. Notice how idols disappoint. Have a look at chapter 57, verse 6. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion indeed. They are your lot. And then have a look at verse 10. 
You wearied yourself by such going about, but you would not say it's hopeless. You found renewal of your strength and you did not faint. See, idols disappoint, but even though when they do disappoint, we just seek another one to seek the fulfillment that we think that that might give us. Not only do they enslave, but they ultimately disappoint. Why? Because nothing that was created was ever designed to be God in our life. God is ultimate. Good things are good things. But good things were never meant to become God, and God become a good thing. Third thing, idols are very subtle. Have a look at chapter 57, verse 8. Behind your doors and your doorposts, you have put your pagan symbols. Does that remind you of anything? In the Old Testament, behind your doors and your doorposts? You'll remember in the book of Deuteronomy where God is speaking to his people. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commands I give you today are on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hand. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God's word was meant to be front and center in the Israelite home to remind them of who he was. But what have they done? They've taken his word and his goodness and they've replaced it with a Baal, a little stone or marble statue of a false god. And that is what they worship. And you know, often the idols in our lives perhaps are so hidden that we pretend that nobody else sees them. And so we excuse them because whatever it is that we might pursue is God in our life. Perhaps we do it behind closed doors and no one ever sees. And they see us at church worshipping the Lord. But what do they see Monday to Saturday? Perhaps the idol's so subtle you've not even seen it yourself. Idols enslave, they disappoint, they're subtle. And finally they spread. Have a look at verse 9. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the very realm of the dead. It's this idea that when you live for a created thing that's not God, so often it's attractive and other people copy you. Oh, I want a bit of that. That sounds good. And you take your eyes off God. It's not just about you and your relationship with God. You take your eyes off God. It could impact another person and help them to take their eyes off God. That's why, friends, as a church, fighting this is so, so important. It's why God says in chapter 57, verse 4, who are you mocking? Who are you mocking? And then he says it in verse 11, who have you so dreaded and feared that you've not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? I know this is challenging. It's been really hard preparing this sermon this week. It's really challenging because what this passage does is it's a penetrating diagnosis of each of our hearts and we don't want to hear it. Of course we don't. But it doesn't mean it's not true. But there is hope. And our only hope is to be rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, a moment of lightness. If you had a bad day, I'm speaking particularly to the women here, if my wife sends to go on, if you had a bad day, what do you most need? Chocolate, very good. Easy, that one, isn't it? Okay. If you're ill, what do you most need? A doctor, medication. If you're discouraged, what do you most need? A friend to walk alongside you, encouragement. If you're swimming in a lake and there are a hundred crocodiles all around you, what do you most need? <laughs> a miracle. Okay. 
You have needs in life, and they can be met by different things. Well, here's our great need that the passage just revealed. That our hearts are so often fixated on something that's not God. What do we therefore most need? We need to have an encounter with someone who is so beautiful that he so captures our heart that whatever it was before that we lived for doesn't cease to be important, but ceases to be God. Because Jesus Christ has captured our heart. And that is the reality and truth. You know, in the the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says this, chapter 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He wasn't looking at these sheep and going, oh, poor sheep, you haven't got a shepherd. Oh, dear. His heart was breaking because the sheep had no leader, no one to protect them, no one to look after them. And the reality in this passage is that without our shepherd, a good shepherd, then we are harassed and helpless and in desperate need. Have a look at verse 12. God says, I will expose your righteousness and your works and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your idols save you. The wind will just carry them off. A mere breath will blow them away. See, that's the challenge, isn't it? And the challenge for each of us is to get right to the very heart of what it is that we're living for and ask ourselves that question. Uh, during um, the communist, in communist Russia, there was a uh, dockyard worker called Petrov. Uh, working conditions were really bad, wages were really poor, and the dockyard workers used to steal things to feed their families, okay? Well, this man Petrov, every night, used to take a wheelbarrow, fill it with sawdust, and march out through the gates, and the KGB officers would come to him And they would rummage through the sawdust to see what he was stealing. Was it drugs? Was it weapons? Was it alcohol? What was he stealing? And it went on week after week after week. And eventually, the KGB agent laughed at Petrov and said, Come on, I'll strike a deal with you. You tell me what you're hiding in the sawdust, and I'll stop searching you. And what did Petrov say? I'm stealing wheelbarrows. This is how idolatry works. So often we look at just the surface. What's in the sawdust? And we miss the subtlety. Someone's walking out the gate with wheelbarrows every week and nicking them. There's always something underneath our sin. And we need to get at the root of the problem. See, if you're a person who's aware that you overwork, overwork's not your problem. It's not simply stop working so hard. Actually, there might be a deeper problem that your identity is very bound up in your performance. If you're a person who never has the ability to say no, that's just a surface problem. Someone can't just come to you and say, stop saying no, stop saying yes. The problem may lie deeper. It may be that you don't want anyone to feel that you're letting them down. So your idol is actually yourself. You want to be needed. If you're a person you're aware, you're often lying. Lying may not be the problem. It might be your reputation that's your idol. And why do you lie? To cover up the mistake you've made because you don't want someone to think badly of you. If you're very irritable, that may not be your problem. It may be control is your problem. And irritability is just the outworkings of it. You see, there's always something that lies much deeper than what comes out of the surface. And so often we focus on what's in the sawdust. But God wants to say, there's a wheelbarrow walking out the gate every day. So what hope do we have, friends? Because this is a heavy-hitting passage. It's hard for us to hear. What hope is there? Well, like every passage, the hope often comes at the end. Have a look at the end of verse 13. But, God says, 
Whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. Whoever takes refuge in me. We had it last week, didn't we? The exclusive nature of God. Me. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened. Whoever takes refuge in me. Will inherit the land is really a symbol, a sign of security. Of course, speaking to the exiles is speaking of Jerusalem, returning to God's city. But it's ultimately speaking of the new Jerusalem, heaven. A secure home for all of us one day. He talks about possessing my holy mountain. It's a picture of being in the Lord's presence. Of course, being back in the Lord's city in his presence, but ultimately in heaven, in his presence forever. And this is the promise that he gives to everybody who will humble themselves and say, I'm not number one in my life. And I refuse to allow anything or anybody else to be number one in my life. Because there's only one number one. And it's God. And when I come to acknowledge that and I throw myself down at his feet in humility and say, you are Lord and I want to enjoy every good thing you've given me. But I don't want those things to become God in my life. Suddenly we're set free from that which enslaves, that which disappoints. And we're suddenly freed to love God as he created us to love him. I said at the beginning, didn't I? The heart of a leader often determines the heart of his people. And if you let Jesus Christ be your leader, and if your heart is fixed on him, then you can't go wrong because actually what you do, the mistakes you make, they're not important. What matters is that he is your Lord. And that is the challenge for each of us. What is your one thing that is stopping you giving everything to God? Just going to finish with one verse that Neil touched on as he was unpacking 1 Thessalonians last week in the evening. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Let's pray for each other. That would be true for us.